The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. All right, everybody, welcome on back to episode number four of Baseball History 101. As always, I'm Patrick DeVault. I'm here with Matthew Carter, fresh off of his visit to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, for the induction ceremony. And we're going to pick up today where we left off with Connie Mack. Um, I believe we left off in 1925-ish. Yeah. Um, and Matthew's going to lead us off with where he wants to continue going with this conversation. All right. So, as we left off, 1925 was a pivotal year. And that was the year that Connie Mack got his four big players that would help him lead him to the new dynasty, his second dynasty in the late 20s, early 30s. And those four players were Lefty Grove, Al Simmons, Mickey Cochran, and Jimmy Fox. Those four, who all four would later be inducted to the Baseball Hall of Fame, were the nucleus of the second dynasty, second of Connie Mack's second dynasty, the Philadelphia Athletics. And 1925, after many years of being in last place and in the second division, the 1925A's finished in second place in the American League with a record of 88-64-1. They were second to the Washington Senators. The Washington Senators. <laughs> and so they're now the glory days are back. They're in the first the what you know, back then they had eight teams, so if you finish in the top four of the leagues, they were the, known as the first division. You know, so they're back in the first division. They're doing great. 26, they finished in third place, but still a winning record, 83 67. 1927 rolls around. They're 1927 28, they're in second place again. And this time, you know, they can't. 27 is the year of the Murderers Road Yankees. You know, they finished. The 27 A's finished like 19 games back of the 27 Yankees. But then they also got. That year, they also got, you know, vet key veteran players like they got Eddie Collins back from the Chicago White Sox they got Zach Wheat who was an outfielder for the Brooklyn Dodgers well okay they were the Robins back then and he's in the Hall of Fame and most importantly they got Ty Cobb Ty Cobb of all people to come play for the A's and so you have those three veteran players along with the nucleus of the young guys so yeah. question you may or might know the answer to. Um, how exactly did they go about getting Ty Cobb? Okay. Backtrack a little bit. 1926, after the season, Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker resigned from their positions as player managers of their respective clubs. Cobb with the Tigers, Speaker with the Indians. Near, I would say, December 26, news breaks out of a possible scandal, a possible betting throwing scandal that involved Cobb, Speaker, Smokey Joe Wood, 
who was Speaker's teammate on the Indians, and before that the Red Sox, and former Tiger pitcher Dutch Leonard. And basically, Dutch Leonard was insinuating that Cobb and Speaker and Wood and himself conspired to throw a game between the Tigers and the Indians in 1919. Now, so, now somebody wrote a book about this, if you want to go read it. I can't remember the name. Oh, Baseball Gods and Scandals. That's the name of the book. But basically, Dutch Leonard's saying, hey, Dutch Leonard had a, uh, a, a craw to pick with Ty Cobb because Cobb and him didn't get along when Cobb was the manager. And he said, you know what, I'm going to get back at Cobb because I can't, you know, for whatever reason, he, he, he never got on another team after the Tigers for Major League Baseball. He wanted to get back at Cobb, so he said, all right, I got, you know, he claimed that he had proof that him and Wood and Speaker and Cobb threw this game in 1919. It was a, to help, I guess, the Indians go to second place. I think the Tigers, they were going to say the Tigers were going to throw this game so the Indians could finish in second place that year. Were the, were the Tigers like a basement team? Yeah, they were in the second division. They weren't in last place, but they... They weren't in the pennant race like the Indians were, you know. So, and so Landis, his son Matt Landis, the commissioner of baseball, hears of this. And he's like, all right, Dutch, if you have proof of this, I need you to come to Chicago. Because Leonard was living in California. You need to come to Chicago and you got to testify and say, hey, show me the proof that you guys did this. And when the day came, Dutch Leonard did not come to Chicago. So he basically, Leonard's excuse was that he was afraid that gangsters would kill him, you know, if he came to Chicago. So he was probably in the fold and screwing some gangsters over and the gangsters weren't going to have it. Right. So he he decided not to come to Chicago and Leonard said, okay, this guy is lying. Cobb and Speaker, you guys are exonerated. You guys can, you guys are not in trouble. You can go back to playing baseball, but you can't go back to your respective teams for whatever reason. So Cobb and Speaker were like hot. You know, they were still in demand, even though they were both pushing 40. They were still in demand. Well, the game was different then. Yeah. And so Connie Mack jumped at the chance. And he said, he, he went to Cobb's house in Augusta, Georgia, and said, reportedly he came with a blank check and said, you tell me what you want, I'll pay it. And Cobb said, fine. And I think it was, we're going to have to double check this, but I remember reading... I think it was either like $70,000 or $80,000 a year. We'll have to double check this. To go play with the A's? To go play with the A's. It was a, at the time it was a hefty sum. But Cobb was worth it because he still could produce. Now he tried, to, now Matt tried to get Speaker, but Clark Griffith of the Washington Senators got to him first and Speaker signed with the Senators for the 27th season. So that's how Matt got Cobb. He got Eddie Collins because I, th- I think Eddie Collins just got released as the player manager of the White Sox. Charles Smithsky didn't want him anymore. So Mac got Eddie Collins back on his team. It's just like 1914 all over again, I guess, you know. <laughs> and then he got Zach Wheat because Zach Wheat and the Dodgers, man- the Robins manager, Wilbur Robinson, they weren't getting along. And so. You know, they said, well, Zach Wheat's pushing 40. We're just going to release him, even though he contributed so much to the Dodgers. I mean, he's still the all-time Dodgers leader in hits and all this other stuff. Lots of Dodger records. He's in the Hall of Fame, but nobody really talks about him when you think of Brooklyn Dodgers players. So he gets Zach Wheat, and then, of course, the big fish, he gets Cobb. 
Uh, he paid Cobb um, seventy-five grand. Okay, seventy-five thousand dollars a year, which was about thirty-three percent more, it says, than any other player in the league was making. Right. I mean, Mac somehow had the big the money to do it, even though he has a reputation for being a miser. He had the money to go get Cobb, and Cobb was willing to do it because he knew, you know, he knew Mac. He knew Mac was the best manager, and he would love to play. He said he would love to have the chance to play with Connie Mac, so he did. And so, 27 A's, they finished second place. Cobb gets his 4,000th career hit with the A's, and it happened in Detroit against the Tigers at, well, it wasn't called Tiger Stadium, it was called Navin Field after the owner Frank Navin. You know, and then, and Al Simmons, you know, like many people growing up at that time, loved Ty Cobb, and he was absolutely thrilled to have Cobb on his team because he could learn batting tips from Cobb. So this was hugely beneficial to the younger guys like Al Simmons. Okay, 100%. Yeah. Grade A clubhouse cat. Yeah. You know, say what you will about Ty Cobb, and that, that could be another episode in the future, but when it comes to baseball, Cobb knew what he was doing. You know, no question about it, especially when we talk about hitting. And so 27 A's, like I said, they finished second place, 19 games out. <laughs> 19 games behind the, 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 the 27 Murders Row Yankees. 28, they finished in second again. Only this time, only maybe like two games back. It was it's much closer. But this year they got, you know, Zach Wheat retires. They get Tris Speaker from the A's. I mean, from the, from the Senators. And, you know, they finish in second place, and both Cobb and Speaker go out in a blaze of glory, you know, in their careers, finishing 1928. But here's 29. Everything changes in 1929. Which, side note, that was the year my granddaddy was born. Yeah, it has nothing to do with the A's, but I just want to throw it out there. Anyway. <laughs> this, I'm sure my granddad was right around the same time period. Yeah. So, this is where it all happens. It all comes together for Connie Mack. The Philadelphia Athletics that year won the American League pennant with a record of 104-46 and one. And I don't. And Yankees. I don't know. I guess they finished second place, but I don't know what the. I don't know what the the, the games back was, but they It all came together. Cochran, so I was back when they were playing 152 game season. Yeah, 152, 154 games around there. Yeah. It, it, well. This is they played 151, but of course they had some washouts and stuff like that. But back in the day, generally it was around 150 games, somewhere between 150 and 155. And they all come together. I'm sorry, you're... With that amount of wins today, you're still going to win your league. Yeah. You're gonna... And they're, they're playing with 10 games left. That's why I was thinking about that math in my head on how many. And so they don't, you know, they just, it all came together for the A's. Cochran. Grove, Simmons, Fox, Mule Haas, Bing Miller, Joe Bully, Max Bishop. They're all firing at all cylinders. And Mac is just, you know, he is so thrilled. After 15 years, or more like, I guess, 16 seasons, he's back in the World Series. And this time he's playing the Chicago Cubs, who won the National League pennant, and they were managed by Joe McCartney who later had greater fame with the New York Yankees in the 30s and 40s. And that team was stacked. The Cubs were stacked. They had Rogers Hornsby. They had Hack Wilson. They had our fellow Alabamian, Rick Stevenson, who played for the University of Alabama. Uh, they had Kai Kai Kyler. 
They had a bunch of a bunch of players I can't think of right now, but those were the four guys I can remember off the top of my head. And then they had pitchers like Guy Bush. They had Charlie Root. They had uh, you know, they had lots of talent. You know, they were a talented team. And McCartney was a great manager. He's in the Hall of Fame. There's a reason he's in the Hall of Fame. You know, and it was a great series. The first game they played in at Wrigley Field. First two games at Wrigley Field. People are thinking that Connie Mack is either going to start Lefty Grove or George Earnshaw or Rube Wahlberg. Those were his three main guy, main pitchers in 29. But he surprises everybody. He gets this old guy, this old veteran named Howard Imke, who pitched for the Tiger. He was one of Cops' teammates back in the day. He also pitched for the Red Sox, among other teams. He's on the A's, and he pitches at the first game one, and he strikes out... 13 Chicago Cubs batters to set a record for the most strikeouts in the World Series. And the A's won that game. And I'm going to apologize. I'm going to look this up. The A's won that World Series first game one by a score of we're going to go here. They won by a score of 3-1. to one. And that was 13 was the most strikeouts in the World Series game? Yes, at that time, that was the most. That was the record. So Bob Gibson currently holds the record for 17 in a game. Yep. He did that in the 1968 World Series, Game 1. So anyway, 29 World Series was exciting. A's win Game 1. Going back here. <clears throat> A's win Game 1. A's win Game 2, 9-3. And Jimmy Fox... Fun, fun fact, Jimmy Fox became the first player to homer in his first two World Series games. Game 1 and Game 2. And of course, Al Simmons also homered and had four RBIs. So, A's take a 2 nothing lead in the series. Game 3 rolls around. Games at Scheib Park. President Hoover, Herbert Hoover attends the World Series game. He's there for Game 3. And Chicago wins 3-1. to one. Right? And Guy Bush is the pitcher for Chicago. He wins game one. And later on, fun fact, he gave up, as a member of the Pirates, he gave up Babe Ruth's last career home run. So that's just a fun fact. Throwing it out there. If you want to look up who Guy that's Bush That's a cool tidbit. I'd be okay with being that guy. Yeah, I'd be okay with that too. I don't know how Guy Bush felt, but, you know, you know, it's Babe Ruth. <laughs> and, like I said, they won 3-1. to one. It's at Shy Park, and Hoover, Herbert Hoover is there. Big deal if the president comes to a World Series game. You know, there were no Super Bowls back in 1929. There was no March Madness. There's no college football playoff. This it's was just it. baseball, baby. It was just baseball. Baseball dominated the American psyche. And Herbert Hoover's like, all right, I'm going to a game. Let's do this. So game four, here's the best, the best game out of this World Series. That Shy Park again. Chicago Cubs are leading eight to nothing, going into the bottom of the seventh. And then all hell breaks loose. What game of the series is this? This is Game Four. Game Four of the World Series at Shy Park. A's are down ten nothing, bottom of the seventh. I'm oh, sorry, eight to nothing. Excuse me, eight to nothing, bottom of the seventh. And then all hell breaks loose. 
Al Simmons leads off the inning. He hits a home run onto the left field roof at Shy Park. Eight to one. Jimmy Fox. Hold on a second. Okay, Jimmy Fox hits a single, and then Bing Miller, outfielder for the Athletics, hits a short fly ball to straightaway center field. Hack Wilson's playing center field, but he loses track of the ball in the sun, and the ball drops for a single. Two guys are on. Jim, I wish y'all could have seen the way I just reacted to him losing the ball in the sun. He was. He, Patrick had his head back, and he was just rolling oh, his eyes. Oh man. Not many, not many players wearing sunglasses in 1929. No, man. Even today it happens, and you know routine play. You're like, oh, come on. Right. So, you know, two guys on. Jimmy Dykes hits another single, scores Jimmy Fox. It's now 8-2. to two. Let's see. George Burns pinch hit. The hold on a second. Joe Bowley, sorry. Joe Bowley came up to the plate, scores another single. Hits another single. Scores Bing Miller. It's 8-3. to three. George Burns pitch hits for the pitcher, Eddie Rommel, who started for the A's. He pops up a short for the first out. So now they got one out. Finally. <clears throat> Max Bishop hits another single. This time up the middle. He scores Jimmy Dykes. It's now 8-4. to four. Right? We got the comeback coming on. This time, they change pitchers. The Cubs change pitchers. Joe McCarthy, he's had enough of Sheriff Blake, who was the starter. It's a strong name. Yes, and he sends out veteran pitcher Art Neff, who played for the New York Giants in the early years of the decade. He's He was a pretty good pitcher. He sends Art Neff out. He's going to pitch. The sun is beaming down on everybody. Poor Art Neff has to shield his eyes. Next batter is Mule Haas, outfielder. He lifted a long fly ball to dead center. Straight at Hack Wilson once again. Hack followed this up. He followed its upward arch against the grandstand background, and then it disappeared in the sun. Once again, sun bounced off. Well, this time Hack Wilson was wearing sunglasses. I stand corrected. He was wearing sunglasses. And he still could not find the ball. It hit the ground. He tries. Hack Wilson tries to catch it with his bare hand. It bounced away from him. Mule Haas has an inside the park home run, and Joe Bully and Bishop. He scores Bully and Bishop as well as himself. It's now eight to seven, and there's only one out. Sounds to me like I'm only playing Hack Bishop in night games. Yes, Max Bishop. Max Bishop. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you said Hack Bishop. No, I'm sorry. It's Hack Wilson. Hack Wilson's the center fielder. My bad. I missed that. I Max, got him crossed Max, up. Yeah, Max Bishop plays for the A's. Hack Wilson. I'm only starting him at night games. Yeah. All right. Crowd's going crazy. There's pandemonium. The A's fans, they were down. They were thinking, oh, man, my team's losing. Even Connie Mack, before this inning, was like, all right, we're going to lose. That's fine. We'll go away for the next game. Excitement's bringing up the comeback's coming. It's eight to seven, and he only got one out in the inning, seventh inning. All right. Now I gotta find out what else happened because there's a lot. Of, I'm reading from volume two of the book, and excuse me, there's a lot of talk about other stuff that's not the action. 
right? So Becky Cochran walks. Actually, Sheriff Blake didn't even start. Sheriff Blake came in and replaced Art Neff. I don't even know who started. I, I'm so sorry, guys. I'm. <laughs> let me go back. Let me. Let, I, I can find it. Charlie Root started, and then he got replaced by Art Neff, and then he got replaced by Sheriff Blake. Right. So you're going through like three pitchers in one inning. It's bad. It's looking bad for the Cubs. Carousel is just... So like I said, Neff walks Mickey Cochran. He gets replaced by Sheriff Blake. Al Simmons hits a grounder that bounced over the third baseman's head. That scored. And then, so you got two guys on. Jimmy Fox single to score Mickey Cochran. It's 8-8. Eight to eight. And you still got... You still got one out. Right? And, you know, people around the city outside of Shy Park are going crazy. Like, there were, like, people, there was a Pencil, University of Pennsylvania football game going on at the same time. And at their scoreboard, they showed the score of the A's game, and crowds going crazy. People were outside City Hall and newspaper offices following, you know, interactive scoreboards. Not electronic, like, it's kind of electronic. I can try to explain it later, but like they had, you know, I guess they're kind of electronic scoreboards that keep people up to date. Kind of like the old school um, clocks on your bedstand where the numbers turn over? Yeah, it's something like that. I, that's another story for another time. I had, don't need to explain it right now. You know, you can look it up. I, we can talk about it another time. But people were following this game outside of Shot Park in Philadelphia. Everybody's going crazy that this is this magical comeback is happening. Ball game's tied 8-8. Eight to eight. You still only got one out in the inning. Right? So now, Jimmy, Joe McCarthy sends another pitcher out. Pat Malone. He hits Bing Miller, the next batter. Bases are loaded. Right? Jimmy Dykes hits a long fly ball towards left field. Rick Stevenson, our fellow Alabamian, Plays left field. He races back and leaped up. And the ball, he couldn't reach the ball. It goes over his glove. Right? Simmons and Fox come home to score. It's now 10-8. to eight. They have now held the lead. And that was the final score of the game. 10-8. to eight. A's win game four. Talk about a comeback. That was a hell of a comeback. And that falls in line directly with the curse the Cubs have been, or I guess they're not dealing with it anymore, but dealt with it in that time period. Yes. That was in the early days of it. Yeah, those was the early days of the curse, if they were even thinking about a curse back then. It probably wasn't a curse at that point yet. Right. So now it's game five. A's win three to two. Haw Emil Haas hits a two-run home run. Actually, the Cubs were up two-nothing. And then Mule Haas hits a two-run home run to the bottom of the ninth. They're down 2 nothing, bottom ninth. Mule Haas hits a two-run home run to tie the game. And then Bing Miller hit a double, which scored Al Simmons. And the A's won their first World Series since 1913. Can you hear me? Okay. They win their first World Series since 1913. 
everybody's partying like it's 1913. Connie Mack once again has a world championship. You know, he is. And how many is that for him at this point? That is World Series Championship number four. Right? Now, side note, he gets, I guess they had a World Series trophy. I don't, it looks nothing like the World Series trophy today, but. So, he, there was a, there was a guy in Philadelphia named Edward Bach. B-O-K was his last name. And he was a Dutch guy, and he sponsored this trophy. And basically, it's it was for around Philadelphia. the The purpose of the trophy was in any award, it was a gold medal and the ten thousand dollars to be given to the person considered by a committee that he set up as having done the most for the city of Philadelphia during the past year. Now, this is more not. Not there weren't a lot of sports people in there. It's like arts people with the arts and sciences and medicine, and music stuff. So it's like a that. community award. Yeah, it's a community award. But as an athlete, you're eligible. Right. Well, following the World Series, some baseball writers and friends of Connie Mack thought that he deserved the honor because Connie Mack's a stand-up guy. Not just because of the World Series, but all of what he's done, you know, bringing Philadelphia all these championships. Compared to the Phillies, which haven't really did much, did really. And there's probably a lot of tax revenue involved in filling your stadium, and he's probably getting to go back to the community along the way, kind of stuff. Right, Connie Mack coming to Philadelphia was a positive, without question. And so they, these guys, not put his nomination before the committee of the Bach Award, and they honestly didn't think he was going to get it, but he did, and. He got invited, and he found out he got invited to Edward Bach's home in, like, Florida. Well, he, he got invited. He got invited to Edward Bach's home, and Edward Bach said, "Hey, you have been you've won the recipient of the Bach Award for 1929." And even though I don't think they give this award out anymore, like Edward Bach died like right after he told Connie Mack that, but. This was a big deal for Connie Mack. That you know, I mean, obviously the World Series trophies are nice, and the American League championships are nice, and the Hall of Fame's nice. But to have an award to show that you gave back and you were a positive to the community of Philadelphia, that meant a lot to Connie Mack. So I don't even know if you can find much much information. Um, it became to be known as the Philadelphia Award. Okay. Um, he passed away in 1930, and he presented from 21 to 30. And the board of trustees of the Philadelphia Award have continued on to now. Um, let's see who the most recent winner is. But it's still an award to this day. The most recent winner, the last winner, was in 2018. A guy named Sylvester Mobley. Um, Wikipedia has nothing about his background or any of that. But carrying on. Still, that's it was a good... It was nice to win that. Connie Mack was honored to win that award. So 1930 rolls around. The A's once again won the American League pennant. Back-to-back -back American League pennants. And let me find the record. I, I was off the page. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. They win with 102, 102 wins and 52 losses. No ties. And then... They go to the World Series, and Al Simmons has a great year. He wins the Bank Championship. 
probably with help from Cobb's tutelage back in the day. He wins the batting championship. And I think he hit like 390 or 380. We'll have to double check on that. But he wins the batting championship. And now they're in the World Series and they play Patrick's favorite team, the St. Louis Cardinals, who were managed by Huntsville native Gabby Street. And Gabby Street was the first Huntsville native to ever play in the major leagues in the early 1900s. So, had to throw that out there, had to throw our, 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 our Huntsville guy. 100%. Yeah, you know, Patrick and I are Huntsvillians, and we will always represent Huntsville. And whenever, you know, we find somebody from Huntsville, we'll talk about him. Is he in the uh, Madison County Sports Hall of Fame? I believe he is in the Huntsville-Madison County Sports Hall of Fame. I was going to say, if he wasn't, that's the movement me and you are going to make happen. Right. He may also be in the Alabama Sports Hall of Fame. He's also he's in the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame because you know he lived in Missouri and he managed the Cardinals. And I think he also managed the Browns if too. If you manage the Cardinals, you get in the Missouri Hall of Fame. That's just how that works. Yeah, it comes to territory. Yeah, and this time the A's win again. They win the World Series again. They beat the Cardinals in six games. And we can go through. I mean, we can go through it, but like I'm not going to spend much time on it. Like the 29 World Series. And let's see. Yes, he is in the Madison County Sports Hall of Fame. Okay, good. I hope. If he wasn't, there was going to be an issue that me and you were going to raise at the next meeting. Right. I'd be like, "What the heck, guys? Why is he? Why is he not in the Madison County Sports Hall of Fame?" All right. So they play. So this time the series starts at Shy Park. A's win the first game five to two. Second game Shy Park. A's win the second game six to one. Now they go to Sportsman's Park in St. Louis. Cardinals win game three five nothing. And then they win again. Cardinals win again, three to one in Game Four. October fifth, the A's play. The A's beat the Cardinals two nothing. And lastly, the A's beat the Cardinals seven to one. They win the World Series. George Urshaw won two won two games. Lefty Grove won two games. Those two dominated. And a little fun fact that's not really Cody Mack related. It, after the series, Al Simmons, Jimmy Fox. And left uh, George Shaw. They went on a barnstorming trip after the series, and they played a bunch of games in the South. And I got to do more research on this, but they made a stop in Huntsville. And uh, it was like October 29th of 1930. I'm trying to think of where they would have played here. There was a ballpark where the VBC is now, called Martin Park. And there was a minor league team that played there for like one season that year. It was like in the Georgia Alabama League. And they came, they came to. Now I, I saw this on newspapers.com. Like I, this was when when I found this out, I blew my mind. And like it was in the Hustle Times and in, in um, newspapers.com. They came to Martin Park, and they were gonna play an exhibition that like they did a hitting exhibition as well as play a game and I couldn't find the box score of the game because it may have been like in the Huntsville News or in the early you know it may have been another newspaper but they came to Huntsville and they brought along coach Ira Thomas and there was going to be a game there at Martin Park and then at night they had a boxing match at Martin Park and supposedly the guys the, the players were going to be there I wish I wish there was more information about this from what I, other than 
I'm so sorry, Patrick. <laughs> I can't find anything in there about it, but I think that'd be something for me and you to go up to the library and see if they have microfish dating back to that time and maybe be able to find a slide about it. Yes. And maybe something to make a copy of and send up to... to yeah. I, I think that would be great. I think that's what something we should do. But I, I saw this on newspapers.com after near the end of my internship, just you know, looking at it, and I saw it, and I was like, oh my God. These guys just won the World Series, and they came to my hometown to do an exhibition game for barnstorming. That that blew my mind, man. <laughs> I bet the public library has the record of it on microfilm somewhere. They gotta have it on microfilm. That's the only you know. If it we, might take us a whole day to find it, but right. I'd enjoy spending a Saturday trying to find that. Mm -hmm. So, nineteen thirty-one rolls around. A's once again win the American League pennant. Gotta go back. They win the American League pennant with a record of 107, 45, and 1. This is strong record. Strong record. Lefty Grove wins 31 games. Of course he does. You know, he's one of the few pitchers during the live ball. He was one of three pitchers during the live ball era to win 30 games in a season. Didn't he do it more than once? No. Lefty Grove did it once, and then Dizzy Dean, and then Denny McClain. Okay. Those were the guys that won it after. Lefty Grove got close a couple times beyond that, right? I'm sure he did. He may have won 30 games when he played Baltimore, but I'll double check on that. But he won 31 games. And he won, I think he won the MVP that year. They had an MVP award at the time, and he won the MVP. He just dominated. And Al Simmons once again wins the Bank Championship. And once again, A's played the St. Louis Cardinals, right? And you think, oh, you know, this is going to be the same matchup as 1930. It should be an interesting matchup. This time, the World Series goes seven games, and the Cardinals win. Thanks to a guy by the name of Pepper Martin, who, at the time, you know, he didn't play much. He started in 1928, and he, he, he didn't really play much, or he did play eventually. But 1931, he started to shine. That World Series... He won. He, I think he had 12 hits, you know, which is the most in a World Series by any player. He won of many people. To this people. day, or just like to this at day. Time. I think to this day, like I think it's the most anybody's in a World Series. 12. I have not seen anything else. He gets 12 hits. He steals bases. He hustles. Pepper Martin, you know, even though he's not in the Hall of Fame, he was a hell of a player. That man could hustle. They call him the wild horse of the Osage. He was from Oklahoma. You know, I mean, this guy just, you know, he had a lot of hustle. He played all out. He was part of that gas house gang St. Louis Cardinals, the typical gas house gang Cardinals. And, the, and they also had other players, too, like Chick Hafey and uh, Jim Bonham Lee and Burley Grimes and Frankie Fresh, you know, and Jesse Haynes. And they had a lot of, a lot of good Hall of Famers on that team for the Cardinals. And fun fact... The St. Louis Cardinals came to Huntsville in 1931, right before the season started, and played an exhibition game at Martin Park, right where, you know, Connie Mack and, uh, not Connie Mack, uh, uh, Simmons and Fox and Earnshaw were. And the Cardinals played a, some scrub, like they basically, the Huntsville team disbanded and they had to like get some scrub players. So they played my men's league team? They basically played a men's league team that had, that also had other Cardinals players on there. like. Dizzy Dean was a rookie 
and him and Gabby Street didn't get along. They were button heads all spring training. Gabby Street made Dizzy Dean go pitch for the Huntsville team, if you could call it that, and Dizzy Dean got shellacked. And the Cardinals beat the Huntsville team 14-4, to and Jim Bottomley went like 6-for-6 six six that game. I mean, he was on fire. So that that's also something I found on newspapers.com. It's just, I'll, I'll show Pat, I, I can email you the, I'll show you the, I, I have the, actually have the box score and stuff, I can show you that. I can confirm that. So, you know, sorry. <laughs> oh, you good. Okay. So, you know, Carl's come to Huntsville for the year because Gabby Street, our Huntsville guy, had to come home. You know, Huntsville's very proud of Gabby Street. And then when the Cardinals won the World Series, Hunt, you know, our Huntsville guy, Gabby Street, got a World Series ring. So, you know, sorry for Connie Mack, but... Our Huntsville guy got a World Series ring. It's all that matters, yeah. That, that's important to us. So now back to Connie Mack. No more talking about Gabby Street. He's done. <laughs> 1932. Now, there's footage of this on YouTube. They go to spring training, Bradenton, Florida, and Connie Mack's like, you know, uh, you know, he's basically giving them speech, and he's like, hey, you know, I'm sure we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, if we work hard and all that stuff, you know, we can, we can win again. The Athletics are going to win another pennant. Well, it didn't happen. They finished in second place to the Yankees with a win total of 94-60. and 60. Good record, but not enough to win the pennant. But it wasn't a bad year. It wasn't that too bad year because Jimmy Fox hit 58 home runs that year. And also, Lou Gehrig hit four home runs in a game at Shy Park. So that, you know, that wasn't good for the, that wasn't good for the A's. So fucking that time period, '58 was pretty sporty. Right, that's two below Babe Ruth. You know, for most before of them, uh, Maris beat Babe Ruth, right? Right, long before Maris beat Babe Ruth. '58 was eye popping, and Jimmy Fox was a big guy. They called him the Beast. He was double X. He had muscles. He could hit the ball. He's in the, he has over 500 career home runs. Just an Adonis of an athlete. Right, he kicked ass. You know, great, great player. And so now, in the midst of the Depression, we're in the Great Depression now, if we didn't mention it already. Connie Mack is feeling the feeling the burn. He is not, he's looking at his uh, pocketbook and he's not liking what he's seeing. Not many people are coming to Shite Park because of the Depression. Even though they had a great team, they won all those, you know, attendance declined. Do you happen to know offhand what a ticket costs to a ballgame now? Somewhere like 50 cents. nickel, 50 cents? 50 cents, 75 cents, dollar, two dollars, somewhere in there. So now, after the 32 season, Connie Mack once again starts to break away his championship team. Just like in 1914, he starts. 30, after the 32 season, he trades Al Simmons. Mule Haas and Jimmy Dykes to the Chicago White Sox. The first big four guy leaves. You still got Cochran and Grove and Fox. But 33, they finished in third place with a 17-72-1 record. And now, after the 33 season, Cutting Mack lets go. Mickey Cochran to the Detroit Tigers. And he became their player manager and he helped the Tigers win pennants in 34 and 35 and he won the World Series in 35. You know, Cochran was a good manager. 
great player, great catcher, but he's also a good manager, good leader, just like Connie Mack. And he trades Lefty Grove to the Boston Red Sox. Right? And he did well with the Red Sox. You know, he won 300 games. He won, he, won, he won exactly 300 games in his career, the Red Sox. And then, so now he still has Jimmy Fox. And 34, they slip. They finish in fifth place with 68, 82, and 3. Still not good. Oh, I forgot to mention, Jimmy Fox won the Triple Crown in 33. Which was all the same year that Chuck Klein of the Phillies also won the Triple Crown in the National League. So Philadelphia had two Triple Crown winners in a season for two different teams. How cool is that? Yeah. That's hard as it is to get a Triple Crown winner now. Right. Who was the last one? Uh, Miguel Cabrera in 2012. Yeah. yeah. And that was eye-popping, too. Because before that, it was Yastrzemski in 67. The most recent's me on the show. Not to brag. Yeah. But that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so, 34 and 35, things are getting dire. 35, the A's finished last with a 58-91 record. It's gotten to the point where Jimmy, uh, I'm sorry, Mac asked Jimmy Fox to go back to being a catcher for some games. Because he started out as a catcher, but he didn't win the, the, the he didn't get the catcher job because Mickey Cochran, but they needed his bat in the lineup, so they put him at first base. But now, Mac's asking him to be a catcher again, so he caught, he catches for a few games. And now, after the 35 season, Mac can no longer afford to pay Jimmy Fox. The last of the big four leaves the Athletics. He sends Jimmy Fox to the Red Sox with his with Lefty Grove. Because Tommy Yaki, the Red Sox owner, can afford to pay him. So now, we're going back into the days of sucking again. And it's a long... The, last, the rest of the 30s is just, you know, lots of 8th and last place and 7th place finishes. Fun fact, they, they did spring training in Mexico in 1937. And it was a disaster. <laughs> like they they spray. Is that league wide in Mexico? Is that league wide? League wide, or just they went to Mexico. They just went to Mexico by okay. themselves. You know, that for the longest time they spring trained in Fort Myers, Florida. But for whatever reason, either they didn't renew the contract, or they just weren't interested in staying in Fort Myers. So they left Fort Myers, and somebody had the brilliant idea of going to Mexico. And I think it may. I have to double check on this. It's in the it's in the third volume of the book. My God. <laughs> oh man. So they go to Mexico and I wish and like they just goddamn <laughs> they had an awful awful year. They go to Mexico. Somebody So here we go. Since the land speculation bubble had burst in Florida and the athletics were no longer the world's greatest team. Spring training in Fort Myers had become more expensive as attendance at the training games evaporated. That's kind of funny because Fort Myers has kind of become that whole area of Fort Myers and all that around there. Yeah. It's kind of become the center of the hub again. Right, because they have the Twins and the Red Sox spring training in Fort Myers mm -hmm. at two different ballparks, but still. And so, you know, it had become more difficult to entice other clubs to travel there for exhibition games. In the fall of 1935, Earl Mack, which is Connie Mack's son, one of three sons, he had taken a troop of barnstormers, which included Jimmy Fox, Doc Kramer, Eric Benair, Pinky Higgins, and Charlie Berry, former ace players, uh, ace players, to Mexico City. But 
you know, they went, and apparently they had a good time, I guess. But they almost didn't go because, like, Landis and Will Harris, the American president, were just kind of like, uh, why do you want to go to Mexico? But then they kind of relented because, oh, money. You know. And so Earl came back from that trip full of enthusiasm. But he was just pumped about going to Mexico. He's like, oh, I had a great time with the guys. Let's go to Mexico for spring training. So he took a vacation and decided he wanted to have spring training there. Yes. And Earl, you know, urged on by Earl, Connie Mack decided to go. According to, from what Norman Mock writes, why he did so is a mystery. Years later, Connie Mack Jr., his son from his second marriage, uh, said he never understood why the team went there. The writers speculated that Mack wanted to treat his boys to some exotic foreign travel, but it was completely contrary to his off-stated preference for a shorter trip to a trading site. The journey would take three days and nights with changes in St. Louis and San Antonio and required visas for everybody. There was no big league clubs anywhere close. You know. And so, you know, Max sent his business manager, the A's business manager, Bob Schroeder, down there to make reservations. But the thing is, like, they made reservations at a hotel outside of the city limits. It was pretty far from where they were actually training in, in Mexico City. And it was just... I mean, <laughs> it's not was, like they were going to Dodger Town and they were just there. It was yeah, it was a disaster. I mean, there's got to be some kind of auteur motive there that is not yeah listed in that seven piece novel you've got your hands on here. Yeah, like, and so the hotel is called the Hotel Le Escargot. It was a French name, I guess, to make it sound to make it sound fancy, but there was nothing fancy about it. Like I said, it was far away from the city. You know, as as Norman Mock put it, it was out in the sticks. The food was poor and the foreign and foreign to the players in their innards. Nobody can read the Spanish menu. Of course. You know. <laughs> they didn't have a lot of Spanish players back in the day back back in those days in the MLB. They didn't know what they were eating and probably didn't want to know. They had to bring in bottled water because Monsoon was cursed, you know. And Connie Mack didn't know any Spanish either. One evening, he decided to go to a show in Mexico City. And he saw one of his players, Randy Gumpert, who was 19 at the time, in the hotel lobby. He said, hey, come come with me to the show. The show was in Spanish, and neither one of them knew what was happening. And then they go into the cab. Uh, Gumpert recalled later, they got into the cab to go back to the hotel, and we couldn't make the driver understand where we wanted to go. Mack became frustrated and, you know, eventually we got back, but it was it was bad. And then he posed, and the kind back was, kind back liked to hand it up for the cameras. He posed for photos. There's one great photo. It's not in the book. I found it online somewhere. He's wearing a sombrero, and uh, like a Mexican sombrero, and a, a, a poncho, a Mexican poncho. And he's kneeling down, holding like a bat. And wearing this sombrero and a pot. He looks ridiculous, but I loved it. Like, I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I was like, man, I wish Norman Mock put that in the book once he, he described about it. But eventually, you know, but they didn't make a lot of money in Mexico. The crowds didn't really come. Basically, the uh, the A's played semi-pro teams. They didn't get anybody, any major league team to come down and play exhibition games. Yeah, it, probably, if I had to guess, travel expenses. Right. It was just so expensive. I mean, they basically either played, you know, semi-pro teams 
or you know the nearby Ford plant sent them a factory team, or otherwise they played air squad games. It was bad. So that sounds like a waste of your spring training, then. Yes, and the thing is, somewhere along the time, somewhere around the line, Cutting Mac got very sick. Actually, oh, actually, well, before that, the president of Mexico, Lazaro Cardenas, invited. He, he he got to, he he met Cutting Mac met the Mexican president. What did they talk about? A Mexican newspaper ran a translated quote from Mac saying, No importa de que empiece hablando, siempre termino hablando de baseball. It doesn't matter what you are talking about, you always end up talking baseball. So that's good. You know, and it was just a dump, it, it, the trip was a dumpster fire. They shouldn't have gone. And then he got sick. Well, first off, he got in, in, a, in a game on March 18th, a wild throw got past the first baseman and bounced up and it, it hit Connie Mack in the shin bone. And he had a big old, big old abrasion on his shin bone. And the abrasion wasn't healing after a few days and he got sick. Like he stayed in bed and it just, they, they took him to the hot, they took him to an American hospital and he developed, apparently he got diagnosed with strep infection, and it spread from his shin bone to his blood, and he just got really, really sick. But he didn't die. You know, but that was just, going to Mexico was not the best idea for spring training. Not a good idea. Don't, don't go to Mexico. <laughs> Especially now, but back in 1937, no. No, don't go to Mexico. <laughs> This is why you don't listen to... This is a reason why you don't listen to Earl Mack. Nobody took this man seriously. But for whatever reason, Connie Mack was like, yeah, let's go to Mexico. Why not? Bad idea. Don't go to Mexico for spring training. <laughs> oh, man. And so, the 30s come around. 1939, you get the first night game in Shine Park. Which was the first night game in American League history for American League Park. So that's a plus. I gotta look. I don't remember who won the game. I think the A's lost, but that was a great moment. You know, Connie Mack, as Norman Mock always said, Connie Mack was stubborn to the extreme. He was very slow to change, but somehow he was like, you know what? Let's have a night game. Let's do it. I feel like he was stubborn to change, rightly so, because it always worked out in his favor somehow, somewhere. Yes, you know. And we can get into this, but he was also very slow to start a farm system for the minor league farm system. Branch Rickey invented with the Cardinals. He got very successful with that. The Cardinals started. They, the Cardinals they, thrive on that to this day. Right. The Cardinals were not great until Branch Rickey invented that farm system. And then they got great. The Yankees saw what Branch Rickey was doing and they caught on. They started their own farm system and they continued to be great. Right. Connie Mack was slow to change in that regard. He that was a reason another reason why the A's just kept sucking for so long into the thirties and the forties. He was slow to change that front. You know, he was more adapt to just, you know, working out gentlemen's agreements with, you know, club owners and minor club owners like Jack Dunn back in the teens and twenties and just, you know, scouting himself and finding players himself without the help of the farm system. And so eventually the A's got a farm system in the late 40s, but it was just too little too late. You know. 
And so they keep sucking. God, they keep sucking. They suck so bad. <laughs> and Connie Mack is getting older in time. He's getting older in age. He turns 80 in 1942. He's still managing. But his memory becomes... I, I'm not saying he had dementia or Alzheimer's. But, you know, you get old and you forget things. Right? And it was affecting the team in the 40s. And eventually, Al Simmons, who came back to become a coach, and Earl Brooker, who was the pitching coach, basically said to the players, hey, watch me for signs. You know, because he's not going to... His signs are off. You look at me for signs. And they did this to... like it, The coaches and the sports players protected Mac. They didn't report about him screwing up mentally in the games. You know, they protected Mac because they so revered him. The man, the grand old man of baseball, they revered him for so long, and they're like, we're not, we're just not going to talk about it. We know it's there. We're not going to talk about it. You know. And so there's this, so during the 40s, there was a great quote before the 1944 season. And I wish I could find it. Bobby Estalella, who I believe was the catcher for the A's, during spring training, at this time, they were spring training in the north because during the war, they couldn't really travel to Florida. 43, 44, they spring trained in like Wilmington, Delaware. Did you not know that? Did you not know that? Yeah, no clue. Lots of major league teams like 43, 44, and even 45, they spring trained. They didn't go south to the south or Florida or anywhere. They spring trade up north. Was it because they were using like coal and things like that to move the trains in other means, or because they were supporting? They, they thought that going to just going far away, going on these trips, affected the war effort. Because we were spending our valuable assets doing nonsense as opposed to fighting the effort. Yes, and just you know, they were like, you know, we need to save money. We can't do this. We need to ration. We need to do this, and so they, a spring trained in Wilmington, Delaware. It makes sense because if I talk to my family members that were alive during the war, what are left of them? That's pretty much how it was. It was all hands on board. Yeah, the war is the most important thing we have going right now. Yeah, I mean that's pretty much how that went down. So, oh, I forgot to mention, 1939, he gets elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, actually, no, 37, he gets elected, and then he gets inducted in 1939. So, how can I be remiss to, I apologize for not mentioning that earlier. Uh, how can I remiss, you know, forget about that? All right. Which is different from today, because he still has an active career. Right. You could, you could do that back then, like, at least for Connie Mack's case, because they're like, all right, he's not thinking about retiring, but it would be foolish of us to not include him into the first classes of the Hall of Fame. So he gets in. In the inaugural class. Yeah, well, yeah. If we're counting 36, 37, 38, 39, he gets elected 37. The inaugural class is 36. Inaugural induction. Inaugural induction, be yeah. Because all 36, 37, 38, 39, all those guys got, that was their induction day in 39. Okay, here's the quote. Was that in Cooperstown? It was in Cooperstown. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they did it in Cooperstown. The Hall of Fame 
was open on June 12, 1939. That was the first induction. You know, like when I was there at the Hall of Fame, we celebrated the 80th birthday of the Hall of Fame induction with cupcakes, and it was nice. All right, so here we go. Beginning, like during spring training of the 44 season, Bobby Estalella, I'm sorry, Roberto Estalella, he also known by Bobby, kind of like Roberto Clemente was known as Bobby. He hated that, but that's what they call him. Roberto Estalella said to him after a few days of practice, Mr. Mack, you, of course in, in, in Spanish, you one of the greatest managers, but if you do something with these bums, you the greatest manager in the world. So basically, Connie Mack didn't have a lot to work with. Now he had like people like the nomadic pitcher Bobo Newsom, who played many times for the Washington Senators, among other teams. He comes to the A's at 44, and he does fairly well. He was a decent pitcher. I mean, overall, is he has a little director overall, but he was a decent pitcher. He could win you games. He was a colorful character, you know. And then he had like you know other guys like Albert Balmo, you know. I think Indian Bob Johnson was still on the team at the time. Uh, Sam Chapman. I mean, you know, he's getting guys, and they're okay, but again, they still suck. This is the '40s. The A's were just sucking. They were down there with the Browns and the Senators. And occasionally the Chicago White Sox. They were just not. They were a second division team. They were very, very bad. But, you know, 47 rolls around. 1947. War's over. And they finish in fifth place. So, there's improvement. So, but they're out in the bubble being a uh, first year team. Right. They have a record of 78. 76 and 2. This is their first winning record since 1933. And, you know, there's a lot of hope. There's like, oh, there's a lot of buzz going on. You know, they had uh, a pitcher named Lou Brissy who suffered a big war, a big wound during the war. And Connie Mack, like, originally, like, you know, signed him that he was scouting him like in the early 40s, like right before the war. And then Lou Brissy goes to war, has that big injury to his leg, and people thought he weren't going to pitch again. But Connie Mack still had faith that he would pitch in the major leagues. He never gave up on Lou Brissy. And Lou Brissy got to pitch, you know, late, like the 46, 47, 48, 49, 50. He got to pitch for the A's because Connie Mack believed that he could do it, and he did. And of course, 1947 is the year that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in the major leagues. Now, this is not going to sound pretty, but this has to be said. Connie Mack was not for integration in baseball. It is what it is. You can't whitewash the history of anything. And that's one thing I will stand by this podcast never do. Right. So we have to talk about it. Now... Norman Mock basically says, you know, basically in, in regards to this, he says, in an attempt to not exonerate but understand the events and the people of the time, it is essential that readers check their 21st century standards and attitudes at the Mental Baggage Depot. Looking back invites the abuse of hindsight by applying retroactively the values and cultures of a future time as though they were eternal which they are not. 
Most Americans today are strangers to the United States of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, as well as to an early existence. They never lived there. So that's basically saying it's a different time. People thought differently. I'm not saying it's right, but that's just how it was back then. That's heavy. Yes. And and that, that kind of still stands today with this cancel culture stuff we have going on. Yes. Granted, some people started to get canceled, but if you say something 10, 15 years ago and you get canceled for it now, that kind of is in the same line of... Right. Times were different. We're not perfect. Connie Mack was not perfect. That's just... But that was standard for the time period. Right. That's where he stood. So, what's... In fact, uh, a black... Uh, in the book, you know... Uh, uh, Norman Mock says years later black writer Brent Staples recognized that when he summed up Connie Mack he's from a different era and it would be ungracious unwise, narrow minded to begrudge a man in his era for how can they live outside that time so that's very fair right so we're not we're maybe not, a note that some people in this day and era could take looking back at some jokes whoever made 10, 15 years ago or right. whatever, you know? Different time, different era. Absolutely. Right? We are not canceling Connie Mack. If nope. somebody tries to cancel Connie Mack, shit's going to go down. somebody tries to cancel Connie Mack, Matthew Carter's going to show up on your doorstep and you're going to have problems. Right. Because I'll be right there with him. Right. <laughs> so, now, I will say this. 1953... Mac is retired from manager, and even though he's still the owner of the club, you know, he's not doing day-to-day -day business stuff. The A's integrate with a guy named Bob Trice. So, now, you know, his son's Roy Earl who ran the team at the time. So, I will say this, even though he wasn't really for integration of baseball, the A still integrated before the Phillies did because the Phillies were the next to last team to integrate. You know, they integrated before the Yankees did. So they may not have been one of the first to do it, but they certainly weren't the last to do it. So maybe, you know, at least, of course, by then, the A's were, we're getting ahead, but, you know, they did integrate when Connie Mack was still around as, like, some part of the A's. So. You know, and I don't think I I haven't seen any evidence that he was like you know mean to Bob Trice or anything like that. But so, but that's where we stand on that issue. We this had to is get one of those out. things. It wasn't something he was fully in on, but also is like if they're going to be one of the last to integrate, and you're still running the team. Yeah. Well, he wasn't even one of the last. You said so. It's like I'm not in favor of this, but what I'm doing. Is what I have to do to win, so I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, I mean, at this point, the A's are looking for anything to win. So, going back to '47, they finished in fifth place with a winning record, first time since 1933. People are like, "Oh, okay, the A's won some games. That's that's interesting." And so, '48 rolls around, they're in the pennant race, like until like August or something like that. And they finish in fourth place with an 84 and 70 record. The Indians won the pennant in the World Series that year, but they finished in fourth place. For you at home, Matthew is remembering his records off of the top of his head. I'm looking at baseball reference and he's nailing them. Yeah, I mean they're just they're just dominating, man. I mean they're they they got good. 
And then in 49, they finished in fifth place again, but it was with an 81-73 record. Still a winning record. So now we get to 1950. This is the pivotal year. This is Connie Mack's 50th season managing the Philadelphia Athletics. And it was a disaster. Kind of like the trip to Mexico. That Norman Mox says it greatly. Could you imagine somebody being a manager slash player over 50 years today? It, that will never happen. It'll never happen. Tony LaRusso can't do it. <laughs> now, if Tony LaRusso didn't retire... And then come back? Yeah. He probably could have done it if he kept winning. Okay, so this is how Norman Mott describes the 50th Golden Jubilee, his season. Connie Mack's Golden Jubilee season was a disaster. Or was it a comedy? Like when the family throws a big expensive party for Grandma and Grandpa's golden wedding anniversary and most of the expected guests don't show up and the band can't play what anybody requests and the party blows up when old family foods erupt. Only nobody laughed. It was bad. That's rude. Why would anybody write that about somebody? <laughs> you know, I mean... <laughs> so, the A's... God help them. The A's finished in last place with a 52-102 record. Connie Mack, his final, his final totals as a manager are 3,731 wins, 3,948 losses, and six ties, or, well, 76 ties. But if you look at the official record, they don't really count the ties. It's just 3731 and 3948. He is the all-time winningest and losingest manager in Major League history. So he's done with that. The season's over, and years later, until the day he died, Connie Mack always said that he managed a year a year too long. He thought that he shouldn't have managed the 1950 season. So now we get into the fun part of family bickering. So by this time, Connie Mack and his family own a majority of the Philadelphia Athletics. The Scheib family still own a very minor, and I mean minor, part of the athletics. This is time that's going on, they've been squeezed right. and squeezed and squeezed out. Yeah, Ben Scheib died in 1922, and then his sons died in 36 and 37. 37, Mack buys a majority of the John and Tom shares, and he divides it among his family, including his sons from his first marriage, Roy and Earl, and his son from his second marriage, Connie Mack Jr. Right? Now, Roy and Earl look nothing like Connie Mack. They were short, Roy was balding. Earl had hair, but like they didn't look much like Connie Mack. Connie Mack Jr. was tall and looked kind of like his dad. Tall, slender. Tall, slender guy. Connie Mack Jr. was just like Senior. So, there's some family bickering. Roy and Earl don't like Connie Mack Jr. And Roy and Earl don't like each other. And there's family bickering in the 1950 season. And... Connie Mack Jr. felt like Connie Mack Sr. should give him control of the team. And Norman Mock said this in, in, you know, in interviews and even in the book. If Connie Mack let Connie Mack Jr. run the A's, the A's might still be in Philadelphia. But instead, Mack was stubborn, like, like he said, he's stubborn to the extreme. And he says, 
no, I need, we need to let the older two, Roy and Earl, run the team. And, but, but then, and he, he told Connie Mack straight up, no, Roy and Earl need to run the team. But Roy and Earl were incompetent. Nobody respected them. Nobody liked them. They didn't like each other. And so Connie Mack said, all right, you know, I'll give you some time to buy my shares. Or like buy a majority of the shares. Buy me out. All that stuff. And they went to Connecticut General. Roy and Earl did. And they got a huge-ass loan. It's in the book. I don't remember what it was. But it's a big loan. I think it was like a, close to a million dollars or something like that. That's huge it's back in 1950. And they somehow convinced Connecticut General to give them this loan. But let's be honest, I don't think anybody thought they were going to pay off that loan. So they get the loan, and they buy out, well, Connie Mack still has here. They buy out Connie Mack Jr. and the Shive interest. And they said, all right, we're going to run the team. Connie Mack's retiring as manager. Jimmy Dykes, former player and coach, he becomes the new manager of the A's for 51. And... Connie Mack's still the president. He's still the face of the A's, but he's not doing much day-to-day operations. Just front office stuff. Yeah, he's just the titular head of the organization. And Roy and, Matt, Roy and Earl run the team, and they run the team to the ground. <laughs> you know, they, they are awful. You know, now, 51, Jimmy Dykes is a decent manager. I'm not saying he's great, but he's decent. We'll go look up his managerial stats because I can't think of it off the top of my head. I apologize. Uh, let's see. Like I said, he was a good he was a good player, a decent manager. But he had some big shoes to fill replacing Connie Mack as manager of the athletics. All right, fifty one let's see. They go seventy and eighty four and they finished in sixth. But they had some stars. They had Ferris Fane, who won the Bang Championship that year. They had Gus Zermiel. And they had Bobby Shantz. 52, they finished in fourth place with a 79-75 record. Bobby Shantz leads the American League wins. The All-Star Games at Shy Park that year. They got rained out. I think we mentioned that in mm-hmm. the first episode. We did. And then 53, they finished in seventh place with a 59 and 95 record. Hey, Jimmy Dice was a decent hitter, too. Yeah, he was a decent hitter. I mean, he was a good player. Decent manager. 34, 34.7 wins above replacement. Mm-hmm. I mean, he... 280 he, batting average. Not a power guy. He's going to slap the ball around. But he could produce. He can play. You know, he was good. So, you know... Played, it, they played from 1918 to 1939, and then I guess this is 11 years off. So how did he get into management? Do you know that? Well, he managed the White Sox for a number of years, from 34 to 46. As a, play, as a player manager? Yeah, player manager for the early part, and then after 39, he just managed. Okay, okay. So he managed for a good number of time. They didn't win any pennants, but he had the managerial experience. He wasn't some new guy off the block. Some Joe Schmo, and of course, he stayed. You know, he stayed in touch with Connie Mack. I, he may have been a coach on the 1950 team. I double check on that, but they're like, you know what, you, they. I think they picked a decent replacement for Connie Mack. Jimmy Dykes. He had the managerial experience. He played for the A's. 
He knows Connie Mack. He's a good ball player, he's, so the fans are going to like him. Right. He, he, fan recognition, you know. Yeah. But he did the best he could with what he had. But, you know, the A's didn't have money, right? Roy and Earl are in debt to Connecticut General because of that stupid loan. And then 54 rolls around. Jimmy Dice gets replaced as manager by Eddie Juiced, who played for the A's in the 40s. And he was a pretty good player. I think he played on the shortstop or second base. He played the infielder. Some middle infielder? Yeah, middle infielder. He was a good guy. But this was, you know, fans are not coming to these games. The A's are sucking. They're bad. They're not going to pay money to watch you if you're just bottom barrel. Right. And so... Temporary. <clears throat> Last year, the A's, let's see if I can find it. They finished in last, what What else, with a 51 and 103 record. Oof. And, you know, by then, the A's are taking flights, but by the end of the season, they're taking red-eye flights. They're not first class. They're taking red-eye flights out of, like, places in the travel. It's right, getting, but three layovers just because. Yeah. Um, it's getting bad. And Roy and Earl and Connie Mack, you know, they feel like they had to sell the team. It was time. They weren't making money. They had to get out of baseball. And so they're looking for people to sell the team. Earl and Connie Mack Sr., of course, they were looking to sell the team and like sell to somebody that was going to take the team out of town. Most notably, Arnold Johnson. This real estate guy who was, he was friends with the Yankees owners, Del Webb and Dan Topping at the time, and I think he owned Yankee Stadium at one point. Arnold Johnson owned Yankee Stadium. <laughs> and he also owned the, he wanted to move the team to Kansas City, Missouri, because he owned the Yankees farm team, or you know, the stadium the Yankees farm team played, the Kansas City Blues. He owned the municipal stadium. You know, he's like, I want to, he's thinking about moving the team to Kansas City, and they're going to like rebuild municipal stadium to a double deck stadium all that for major league standards but Roy Mack still wanted to keep the team in Philadelphia and he's looking around for local buyers and he turns up with eight local investors and they're known as like the Philadelphia eight now these were just like a bunch of businessmen like they're not world famous guys just a bunch of big wigs in the community that had a little expendable money to help keep baseball alive. Yes. And so, on October 17th, 1954, the Philadelphia 8, along with the Max, Connie, Roy, Earl, they signed this agreement and they said, all right, those local investors are buying the A's, we're saving the A's, and they're all shaking hands and they're like, yeah, guys, we saved the A's, yeah. And then, right afterwards, Arnold Johnson calls Roy Mack. And he basically says, if you sell me the A's, I will have a job for you in Kansas City. And then Roy got to start to think. And he thought, hmm. Maybe selling the team isn't so bad. And so at one of the meetings of the American League, when it came time for all the voters 
to vote for the the sale of the A's to the Philadelphia Eight, Roy Mack voted against his own deal. And this annoyed everybody, including especially Chuck Comiskey, who owned the White Sox. And there's a quote, if I can find it, like he just, <laughs> I mean, now, but Roy, but Will Harridge actually, I take that back. Some people wanted the A's to move from Philadelphia because it was hard to get to Shy Park. The neighborhood around Shy Park was becoming a ghetto. There's no way around it. North Philadelphia is a ghetto, right? Nobody wanted to go to Shy Park anymore. I'm still trying to wrap my head around how you would vote against your own proposal. Basically, he got he got sold by Arnold Johnson, and then apparently the some members of the Philadelphia Eight, you know, well, some members of the Philadelphia Eight were longtime friends of Earl, and of course, there's that rivalry between Roy and Earl; they didn't like each other, you know. And then they started like walking the, the Philadelphia Eight started walking around Shy Park, saying, "I want to do this and that, this and that, this and that, this and that," you know, which didn't really suit Roy very well for whatever reason. So a combination of Arnold Johnson offering this job in Kansas City, the majority of the owners, the new Philadelphia being Earl's friends, and then, you know, the way, I guess, the new owners went about expressing what they wanted to do to change the club and Shine Park and all that, didn't really please Roy Mack very much. For whatever reason. And so... When the time came to vote for it, he voted against his own deal. Everybody's like, what the heck? What are you doing? And eventually they had to do it again. They cut, they, you know, Arnold Johnson's got his chance. And also, fun fact, Charlie Finley, who would later own the A's, was also in the hunt to buy the A's from, from, Connie, from the Max. But he lost out to Arnold Johnson. Arnold Johnson... He's like, they finally, Roy's like, all right. He convinces Connie and Earl and everybody to sell the A's to Roy John, uh, to Arnold Johnson. They sell it to Johnson in November 1954, and he moves them to Kansas City, and the Athletics are no longer members of the Philadelphia. Philadelphia only has one team, the Phillies, which at that time they were playing in Shine Park since 1938. They were sharing, A's and Phillies were sharing Shine Park. And Connie Mack is absolutely heartbroken that his team, the team that he built, that he cared for and led for over 50 years. He planted it and grew it. He planted it and grew it. He is absolutely heartbroken that they... Rightfully left, so. That he, they left Kansas City. And 55, you know, Connie Mack actually goes to the first Kansas City A's game in Kansas City. He actually goes, which you would think is kind of was it sadistic, masochistic, something like that? You think it's like, you know, you're seeing your old team play in a city that you no longer, uh, that no, that no longer, that's no longer in your city, you know. But he goes there and he meets Harry Truman, so he gets, you know, former president Harry Truman, so he gets that. But it's just, I would have been so petty. Yeah, I wouldn't have gone, but you know, but again, Connie Mack is 92 at the time. He's gonna be 93. 
And he's getting older. He's knocking on death's doorstep at this point. Right. Honestly. And it's just bad. You know, he's... Because B-93 in that time period. Right. Something you did was right. Yes. But, and he passes away on February 8th, 1956, at the age of 93. And you can make, you know, of course, he, he basically, he suffered a broken, he, he broke his hip in like October 55, and there's lots of other health problems. But you can honestly say that he died of heartbreak because his team left. You know. So. Yeah. I mean, I... But another, but you know, I guess going back to end it on a positive note, <laughs> you know, one thing I forgot to mention: Connie Mack liked loved to write letters. Like fans would write him letters about anything and everything about the team, and he would always find time to write people back. If you... I respect people in positions like him or pro athletes where when you mail them a card from the sign they send it back and all yeah. that. I respect the guys that take the time to do that. Now, Always will. Now most of his letters were handwritten, but of course other like later on he also you know typed it out or had somebody type it out for him. So there's this but one. The fact he took the time to reply means a lot. Yes, it meant a lot, and he knew that. And like and not just people from the, all over the country wrote him letters. And he always found time to write back. And I have a little story, and I'm, I'll try to be brief. There's this kid named Lee Thompson who lived in Nawada, Oklahoma. And in 1913, when he was like 12 years old, he organized a team of 12-year-olds, and he called themselves the Nawada Athletics after the A's because, you know, they won the World Series that year. They were a great team. In December of that year, he wrote Connie Mack a letter telling him about the team and expressed his admiration for the A's leader. And he enclosed a photo of himself and his brother, because his brother played on the team. To his surprise, and I'm reading from the book, to his surprise, he received an immediate reply and a hit, a immediate reply, a handwritten note on the club's letterhead dated from January 2nd. Mac thanked him for the picture, which he wrote would be placed in his office. And he said, hope you had a pleasant Christmas and also a happy new year. And best wishes to brothers and yourself. And the letter came with an autographed baseball. Years later, in 1925, you know, uh, Lee Thompson was a senior at the University of Oklahoma. And that summer he planned to travel east to go to baseball games. And this time he writes to Connie Mack again, asking if they might meet. Because... You know, during the schedule, the athletics were going to be in St. Louis on July 20th. Well, hold on. The athletics were in St. Louis when Connie Mack wrote back and said, More than pleased to hear from you, and a while, sorry to hear you losing your father, and pleased to hear that you were able to remain in school, and also your brother could continue to school also. You did not mention Philadelphia as one of the five cities you would visit. You will visit in the course of the next two months. If I was in Phila, of course, Connie Mack's grammar is not the best so you know we're we're going back if i was in phila would have been able to send you a pocket schedule just this moment looked in my grip and am in closing schedule i found insane so you can see when our club plays try and make phila if you can you could stop off on the way to new york from washington if you come through in daytime j jump off at north philadelphia only five minute walk from the station to the ballpark we'll be pleased to see you many thanks you know 
and then they finally meet in Chicago, I guess that year. 1940, we're still, we're going around. 1942, Lee Thompson's in the Army, it's World War II, he's stationed in Fort Devens, Massachusetts. When the A's came to Boston, Connie Mack invited Lee and his family, his wife and his three kids, to lunch at the hotel before the game. And, you know, his son, you know, we called the 65, we called years later, he's like, I was eight years old, we sat at a large ta round table at the hotel's dining room. I sat next to Connie Mack. I remember being amazed at his fingers because they're so not a bit because he was captured in the 1880s, arthritis and all that. The experience made such an impression on me that I even remember what I had for lunch. Peanut butter jelly sandwich, garnished with parsley, which I consider the last word of elegance. The true elegance, of course, was Connie Mack himself. Friendly, kind, courtly, a true gentleman. Imagine him taking the time and interest First, 28 years later, in a letter to a boy in Nevada, Oklahoma, and then 28 years later, continuing this unlikely friendship in such a thoughtful manner. In the afternoon, they, the family sat behind the dugout at Family Park, and when Dick Sieber broke his back, Connie Mack had the bad boy give it to the Thompson's kids. And then, when, one of Lee, when Lee Thompson's son got married in the 50s, Connie Mack sent a piece of silver as a wedding present. To the to the to the son uh, Lee Thompson's son, so forty plus years of pen pal writing between Connie Mack and this guy named Lee Thompson, just a random kid from Oklahoma, just decided to write Connie Mack a letter one day in 1913, talk about the A's, his Nawada Athletics, and he I don't think in his wildest dream expected that Connie Mack would a write back to him and b continue this correspondence and meet after, you know, actually meet, you know. Does the Hall of Fame own any of those letters? I know. I believe they do. I know they own some. I know they own some letters of correspondence. I, I hope they have that entire chain. I hope, that would be a hell of a display. Right. And that's, and I'm sorry, and that was a long story, but I had to it's hard to express in a short amount of time, a short amount of words, how much this man wrote, made damn, tried to make damn sure to write to everybody who wrote to him. He he didn't have to do it. He had you know he had time you know he's busy running the team, busy raising the family, but he made damn sure to write back to anybody who wrote back to him. You don't get a lot of that these days. You really don't, and that just. When I read that in the second book, I was just blew my mind, you know. And I thought, man, this Connie Mack was—he was a good guy, you know. Before we wrap it up, can you shoot out the two uh, books you've been referencing this uh, both parts of the series? Yes. Yeah, so for well, we'll start with the first book, which is a three-volume book. I've only brought two today because we didn't need the first book today. The first book was called Connie Mack in the Early Days of Baseball. That's volume one, written by Norman Mott, Norman L. Mott, M-A-C-H-T. Somebody said it's Macht, but you know, it could be Mack or Mott. Volume two, Connie Mack, The Turbulent and Triumphant Years, 1915 to 1931. And then last but not least, The Grand Old Man of Baseball, Connie Mack, in his final years, 1932 to 1956. It is a three-volume biography and if you have the time and the interest in reading a three-volume biography on a baseball person, this is something I would highly, highly, highly recommend. For sure. So. 
I would just like to end this episode saying that Connie Mack was at time, you know, was a great manager and, you know, in spite of his view of integration, I think he was a great person. So, and that's all I... Well, well like we discussed earlier in the episode, it was a different time. Right. So. And it's not really fair to judge somebody from the 40s with today's standards. Right. So, you know, Guy was unique and he was a huge part of baseball history and somebody that you cannot ignore when you talk about the history of this game. So. I 100% agree, and I've enjoyed the, what we've talked about for almost three hours now. Yeah, sorry um, about over that. Over two episodes. <laughs> I'm not sorry about it. Like I've really enjoyed learning, because this is an episode, a two-part episode, where you've really taught me a lot. Yeah. Um, but do you have anything you've said what you have to think, man? Um, what do you thought? What do you think? Just I think he's a big part of the evolution of baseball in the way that he was able to maneuver and get players in times when he needed them. And he was, especially from the owner's perspective of baseball, he was ahead of his time in building a team that was going to make him money. And as a managerial perspective even, just why do I need to win? Mm -hmm. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be a guy that can win. Even down the fact where his last season where he was... It's like I think their win percentage was 383, if I remember what I saw. It was bad. It yeah. was, it was <laughs> winning 38% of your games, you know, and he's like, I should have retired a year sooner. So it tells me he's well enough aware. I mean, it just it seems like total package. He knew what he was trying to do baseball-wise. Knew how to get there. His son's gotten involved, probably kind of tarnished what he had built, but... <laughs> I think he's definitely somebody that everybody that wants to learn about baseball should start with. Yeah, 100%. So. Yeah. Um, with Connie Mack being wrapped up, um, we really much appreciate y'all listening to this. this is, I guess this is the fourth episode now. Um, yep. We're on some more platforms now since the last time we recorded. We're... Um, Share it with your friends. We got an email address: baseball history one hundred and one. A correction: baseball his one hundred and one at gmail.com. If you want to hear us talk about a topic, shoot it to us, and we like it, we'll do it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually going to be able to set up soon a uh, voicemail line on Anchor.fm where you can leave us a voicemail and give us feedback. Ooh. And um, we're on Apple Podcast, baseball history one hundred and one, Spotify. Anchor and six or seven other platforms. You just Google, Google us, you'll be able to find us. We're also on Google Podcasts. Okay, yeah. So um, pretty much just you just Google us, you'll be able to find us, and we're happy with that. Um, yeah. Thank y'all so much for listening. Thank you guys. We really appreciate that. Um, yeah. If you want, we're, we're glad that people like to listen to us talk about baseball history because, as I've said, until the day I die, baseball <laughs> history. Kids Bobby Thompson had done it. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. We'll see y'all next time. Bye. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially with. 
Mickey and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning, one Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Midget Goodell, the Thumper and Mel Parnell, and Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the Scooter, the Barber, and the Duke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, he swore he was the Oklahoma kid And Cookie played hooky to go and see the Duke And me, I always loved Willie May Those were the days Well, now it's the 80s And Brett is the greatest And Bobby Bonds can play for everyone Rose is at the vet, Rusty again is a Met, and the great Alexander is pitching again in Washington. I'm talking baseball, like Reggie Quees and Berry, talking baseball, Carew and Gaylord Perry, Seaver, Garvey, Schmidt, and by the blue. If Cooperstown is calling, it's no fluke, they'll be with Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Talking with